Today's scripture comes from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba and Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Happy Sunday, everyone. My name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors here at Exilic, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. Uh, we are now heading into week six of our quarantine, and so what we are doing as a church is a sermon series about our quarantine life that we are calling What to Do When I Feel dot dot dot. And so we've taken a look at what to do when I feel anxious, what to do when I feel lonely, what to do when I feel powerless, what to do when I feel mortal. And today we're going to be taking a look at what to do when I feel overwhelmed. You know, in many ways, when uh, the quarantine first happened, day one sort of felt like we were all students again, and it was a snow day, which was great. But then that quickly turned it from a snow day into, no, this is definitely, definitely something different. This is a quarantine. And I'm not sure who said this, but one person said 2020 is a very unique leap year. It has 29 days in February, 300 days in March, and five years in April. And I have no idea what May or June are going to feel like, but I suspect that it will feel even longer than April. And so this message is for those who feel overwhelmed. This message is for those who want to throw in the towel. This message is for those who feel like they're running on fumes, who feel like they're wearing too many hats all the time, full time. This message is for those who feel very hurried, frantic, breathless, who are running from one thing to another, who have so many things to do and so little time to do it. This message is for you because when a person feels overwhelmed, they often feel like they're running a marathon. And running a marathon is hard enough. But when a person feels overwhelmed, they not only feel like they're running a marathon, but they feel like they're running a marathon submerged underneath water. And so they are physically and emotionally and mentally drained, and you might even be spiritually dead. And so this sermon is for you. Uh, on a personal level, uh, before this pandemic struck, uh, I was in a good place, our family was in a good place, our church was in a good place. I had very healthy rhythms and patterns, 
And then all of a sudden this pandemic struck and it created this tectonic shift where it completely disrupted our normal rhythms and patterns. And so from a family perspective, um, I have two kids. One of them has decided to hit uh, her terrible twos before she's even two. And these two kids usually go to daycare from nine to six. And it's during those nine hours that I can get some work done. But those nine hours are now completely gone because they are not in daycare, they are now at home. And I wish I could give them an iPad for nine hours, but I can't. And so what do we have to do? We have to give them new rhythms and patterns because their rhythms and patterns have also been disrupted. And so at a family level, uh, things have been shaken. Uh, from a living perspective, we now live with our in-laws because they can help with the kids once in a while. Uh, but there are now seven people living under one roof and our habits are sometimes, they sometimes run into one another, which creates conflict. And at a church level, I mean, things were, the momentum was going so well and uh, things were going so good, but it also disrupted our rhythms and patterns, which grieves me. Uh, this weekend was actually supposed to be the weekend where our women's retreat took place. And I'm so sad that it's now going to be much, much, much later in the future because we had a great speaker. I was excited about all the new relationships that were going to be forged. I was excited about all the existing relationships and how they would have deepened. And it grieves me that that's now not going to happen until many, many, many months later. Additionally, we had to move everything that we were doing as a church online, which took an enormous amount of work and still takes an enormous amount of work. Uh, on top of all that, from a ministry perspective, um, we have uh, people, we grieve with people that are inside of our church and outside of our church that are sick or who have lost loved ones, or people who have uh, lost their jobs, people who have postponed their weddings. Uh, there are all sorts of counseling situations that are coming out of this. In addition to all of the normal aches and pains of living life. And all of this was happening and I was still trying to maintain status quo with about 20% of the time that I am used to having. And to use a biblical metaphor, in many ways, I felt like I was building bricks, the same amount of bricks with no straw. And so there were all these things that needed to be done. And I felt the weight and the pressure and the burden of it. And it was getting to me. And at about the end of week two of our quarantine, uh, Hannah could see, my wife Hannah could see that it was getting to me and she said, we need to talk. And in many ways, it was that conversation in addition to other conversations uh, that was really the turning point for me uh, to go from feeling very overwhelmed to eventually going to overflowing with the peace of God and the love of God in my life. And in many ways, I don't know if you feel overwhelmed or not, but if you do, I want this sermon to be a fireside chat that we have between God and us so that this can be a turning point for you so that you can go from feeling overwhelmed to overflowing with the peace of God and the love of God in your life as well. So there are three things that I want to take a look at for, day, uh, for today so that we won't feel overwhelmed anymore. Number one, we need to manage our expectation levels. 
Number two, we need to manage our centeredness. And number three, we need to manage our level of self-care. Okay, so first of all, we need to manage our expectation levels. Uh, this is actually the first thing that I wish someone had told me when the pandemic struck to manage our expectation levels. And here in this passage, we read about 1 Kings 19 and Elijah. But it's impossible to understand 1 Kings 19 without first understanding 1 Kings 18. And to give you a Cliff Notes version of what this amazing, amazing Old Testament story is about, in 1 Kings 18, here is Elijah and his God, and these false prophets and their God, Baal. And the setting is Mount Carmel, which is like the equivalent of Madison Square Garden, because there are thousands of participants and spectators watching the showdown between Elijah and his God and these false prophets and their God. And to, to speed up the story, Elijah and his God win, these false prophets and their God Baal lose, and you would think that Elijah would be carried off on the shoulders of everyone with a victory cigar in his mouth, but what ends up happening is the exact opposite. There is no real repentance. There is no genuine revival. And instead of getting that, Elijah gets something completely different. And now there is a death threat for his life. And we read in verse 1 and 2, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Uh, King Ahab was one of the worst kings in Israelite history, and his wife Jezebel was equally wicked. And so here is Elijah experiencing this highest of high with this incredible victory. And just like that, he's experiencing this lowest of low because King Ahab and Queen Jezebel now want to kill him. He was expecting one thing, but he got something else. And here, one of the keys for us to prevent us from feeling overwhelmed is to manage our expectation levels. And let me give you two examples why. Uh, the book that we use for our premarital counseling is a book that is called What Did You Expect by the preeminent counselor, Paul Tripp. And one of the things that Paul Tripp says is that the number one problem that newlyweds bring into their marriage is unrealistic expectations. So couples come in with a fairy tale Disney mindset of what they think marriage is going to be like. And then all of a sudden, six months in, a year in, two years in, three years in with kids, marriage comes like a colliding wrecking ball into their life. And usually the first thing that people say is, I didn't think that it was going to be this way. I didn't expect this. But when two sinners say, I do, a good counselor would have told them before they got married that when, he, when two sinners say, I do, you should expect conflict. You should expect marriage to be a collision course where your sins run into one another. And hopefully a good counselor would have said, here are some steps that you can take so that in the midst of your sins, your marriage can still thrive. But the number one problem that uh, marriages have is unrealistic expectations. They expected this, 
but it ended up being like this. They did not manage their expectation levels. Here's another example. There was a pastor who was riding in a New York City cab, uh, visiting the city, and as he was uh, driving, uh, as they were driving in the cab, uh, another car from behind them hits uh, their rear. And so the pastor thinks that the cab driver is going to get out of the car, stop the car, get out of the car, examine the bumper, maybe take down the information of the other person driving behind them. But to the pastor's surprise, the cab driver kept driving on nonchalantly as if nothing had happened at all. And all of a sudden it dawned on the pastor that the reason why the cab driver is so composed is because he expects to get hit. He expects bumps and bruises. He expects nicks. He expects a little bit of collision because of the environment he's in. Uh, maybe other cab drivers in different settings don't expect it, but this cab driver does. And so what made this cab driver very composed and collected is because of their expectation levels. And so our expectation levels determine how we approach different things. Do you know why our name, uh, our church's name is Exilic? Our name is Exilic is because we have been exiled east of Eden uh, since Genesis 3. So Eden is paradise and perfect. East of Eden, it's hardly anything but paradise and hardly anything but perfect. And so what we should expect then for life to be is life is going to be filled with thorns and thistles. Life is going to be hard. Life is going to be difficult. Life, life is going to be filled with suffering and life is also going to be filled with death. But oftentimes the way that we live our life is that we expect life, the good life, to be comfortable and cozy with not that much suffering, pain, or death. And one of the reasons why we expect life to be this way is because we have a very deconstructed, thin, and narrow view of the power of sin and the effect of sin. But a person that is a good student of the Bible and understands the power and the effect of sin would expect life to be difficult. They would expect life to be hard and for it to be filled with suffering and pain. Healthy couples expect conflict and they expected it before they got married. Cab drivers in the city, they expect collision. And my question to you is, do you expect conflict do you expect collision in your own life? Elijah was one, one person who expected things to go one way, but they went completely another. And as a result, he is overwhelmed. And so as a result of that, he wants to quit. And we know that because in verse three, it says this, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. So Beersheba is 90 miles south of Mount Carmel. And here in this verse, we read that Elijah leaves his servant in Beersheba while Elijah himself moves on into the wilderness. And one would think that the reason why Elijah leaves his servant there is because he wants to protect them since King Ahab and Jezebel are after them. If Elijah is caught, at least his servant will be safe. But we know that that's not the case at all. And here's why. In many ways, a servant of a prophet was sort of like an intern or uh, a prophet's metaphorical staff. And so the fact that Elijah abandons or leaves his metaphorical staff in Beersheba is Elijah's way of saying to God, Hey God, I'm done with this. 
I quit the ministry, I want to retire my jersey, and I don't want to do this anymore. And we know that Elijah doesn't want to do ministry anymore and just quit because he not only wants to quit his ministry, but he wants to also quit his life. And so if we read in verse 4, it says this, While Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than any of my ancestors. You know what's so interesting about this verse? When you take a look at the Bible, there are only two people that never tasted death. Even Jesus tasted death, but there are two people that never tasted death, and they both start with the letter E, and that is Enoch and Elijah. So Elijah was a man that walked very intimately with God. In fact, when Jesus was born and doing ministry, many people mistook Jesus for Elijah. I mean, that is how great Elijah's reputation was. So here's a man that walked intimately with God, never tasted death, and yet here we read in 1 Kings 19, his lowest of lows, because he not only wants to quit the ministry, but he wants to quit his life. And I do wonder, as we take a look at this passage, if there are any of us that can relate to the feeling of wanting to just quit. Quitting this, quitting that, maybe even quitting life itself. Uh, the reason why Elijah is overwhelmed and he wants to quit is not only because he has the wrong expectation levels, but it's also because Elijah has the wrong centeredness and Elijah has the wrong focus. And we know that because if there is one person that should be upset that there is no revival in the land and no one repenting, it really should be God. But here, Elijah is even more upset than God. And he goes on to say, you know what? I'm not even better than any of my ancestors. I'm just like them. You know when a person is really overwhelmed? When they are making everything about them. You know when a person is overwhelmed when they're throwing lavish and extravagant pity parties? You know a person is overwhelmed when they are constantly feeling sorry for themselves and, and having this woe is me attitude just the way Elijah is doing here. He feels super sorry for himself and he says, you know what, I'm not better than any of my ancestors. But you know what, if you take a look at any good leadership book, the number one thing uh, that any good leadership book will say is this, that the number one mark uh, of a good leader is not how tall they are, how good looking they are, how dynamic and charismatic their personality is, how good their oratory skills are. Rather, the number one mark of any good leader is their centeredness. That when chaos strikes, they're not oscillating to the left or to the right, but there's a sense of buoyancy in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of everything sinking around them, rather than they themselves also sinking. And as Christians, we have something that we can anchor ourselves on that is more powerful than even a pandemic, and that is God himself. And so what we need to do when we feel overwhelmed is to displace ourselves from the middle and put God back in the center of everything so that we are not throwing these lavish pity parties and feeling sorry for ourselves. Now the question is, how do we displace ourselves and put God back in the middle? And here I want to be very, very practical. Uh, one of the things that has helped me 
It's a three-step process is this. How do I make myself, how do I make my heart happy in God every morning that I wake up? And the three things that I try to do is this. Number one, in a very non-judgmental way, I take an inventory of all the things that I am feeling in my heart. And the reason why I say that in a very non-judgmental way, I take an inventory of all my feelings is because oftentimes we want to paint ourselves in a more rosy picture than we really are. But if you approach uh, the inventory of your, the feelings in your heart in a non-judgmental way, you will be more honest with yourself. So the first thing I do is in a non-judgmental way, I take an inventory of my heart. The second thing I do is this. I ask myself the question, why do I feel this way? Okay. Why do I, you, when I take an inventory of my heart, it's, it's often filled not with just with the good, but with the good, the bad, and the mostly ugly. And so I ask myself, okay, why do I feel the way that I do, particularly with regards to the bad and the ugly? When I ask myself why I feel this way, a lot of the feelings sort of begin to rise to the surface. And once they begin to rise to the surface, the third thing that I do after I take an inventory and ask myself the question why is I repent of the mostly bad and the mostly ugly. And I not only repent of those bad feelings, but I also surrender them to God. I say, God, there's a lot that is going on right now and my shoulders are not broad enough to handle the weight of everything that is happening, but your shoulders aren't broad enough. And when I do this three-step process, it automatically feels like there's a 100-pound backpack that has been lifted off my shoulders. And uh, to a certain degree, I feel a lot more free and less overwhelmed than I once did. And so we have to manage our expectation levels. We have to manage our centeredness so that we are not in the middle of everything. We are not the center of everything, but God is put back in the center because everything we do should be for Him and His glory anyway. But the third thing that we need to do is to practice and manage self-care. Uh, so read with me verses 5 through 6. It says, Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Elijah sort of vents to God in prayer and says, I want to quit life. And then he falls asleep. And as he's sleeping, he is gently woken up by the touch of the angel of the Lord who has prepared bread over hot coals and a jar of water for him. And there are two observations that I want to quickly make about this verse. The first is that we are not Superman. We are body and soul. And our bodies are finite, and they have real limitations. Uh, Elijah, again, goes on this 90-mile trek, and he is tired, and he is emotionally exhausted from chapter 18 and this epic battle that they face. And here he comes crashing, crashing down, exceeding those limitations. And oftentimes when we're overwhelmed, we go beyond what we're capable of uh, doing. And so here, it's really important for us to practice self-care. Now, the, word, the phrase self-care can be a little bit awkward because it's not a biblical word. In fact, if anything, the Bible kind of suggests the exact opposite. It talks about not self-care, but self-denial. So how do we reconcile these two things? And here's what I would say. I would say that self-care, I mean, the opposite of self-care is not self-denial. 
Rather, the opposite of self-care is selfishness. Now, self-care oftentimes sounds like selfishness, but they are two different things. Here's why. The goal of self-care is so that I can love God and love others more. The goal of selfishness is so that I can love myself more. Okay. So the attitude of self-care is not treat yourself. The attitude of self-care rather is more input so I can do more output. And the classic example of this is when we're riding on an airplane and the oxygen masks fall down. Uh, what is the first thing that we're taught when the oxygen masks fall down is not to put the oxygen mask on someone else, rather it's to put the oxygen mask on ourselves so that we can put it on other people. And so here the idea is, unless you're taking care of yourself, you cannot take care of other people. Uh, a cup cannot pour out anything if it's already empty. And so we have to learn how to practice self-care. And we see this with Jesus himself when he would often retreat away from the multitude and where he would get alone time with himself and with God, uh, where he would uh, find replenishment for uh, the reserve tank that was nearly empty. And uh, I like the way that Kevin DeYoung uh, talks about this, uh, Jesus' practice in his book, Crazy Busy. And he says this, Jesus did not do it all. Jesus didn't meet every need. He left people waiting in line to be healed. He left one town to preach to another. He hid away to pray. He got tired. He never interacted with the vast majority of people on the planet. He spent 30 years in training and only three years in ministry. He did not try to do it all, and yet he did everything God asked him to do. And so my question to you today, in particular, if you feel overwhelmed, is this. Are you being a good steward of your body and your soul during this quarantine? And so here are a few litmus questions for you to ask yourself. Number one, what is my body telling me right now? Do I need more sleep or do I need less sleep? Do I need to exercise? Do I need to breathe more consciously? Am I eating regular meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Are they healthy meals? Am I treating sleep, nutrition, exercise, and emotional refreshment as luxuries instead of necessities? Am I spending too much time watching and reading news, the news to the point where my body feels anxious? Or do I meditate more on God? Do I need to spend more time with people that are life-giving this week? Am I sharing my concerns and feelings enough? Am I dealing with my negative thoughts or am I just pushing them to the side and ignoring them? Do I need to repent for crossing the line from self-care to selfishness during this quarantine, particularly when there are people that are overwhelmed that really, really need my help? Now, I realize that some of you might be hearing these questions and you're thinking to yourself, hey, I would love a great nap. I would love a lot more sleep, but how can I do that with all these kids or these, or because I'm working the midnight oil for my company because they're demanding so much and they don't know any boundaries at all. How do I do that when I really, really can't? So two things I would say is that number one, keep in mind that this is seasonal, okay? There is a light at the end of the tunnel. Life will not go on forever like this. And there are times and seasons where things will be like this and we have to just put one foot behind the other. The other thing that I would say is that 
Uh, one thing that you might consider is fine-tuning your game plan. And so one of the things that uh, my wife Hannah and I were doing in week one and two is that we were both watching our kids and as a result of that, the both of us couldn't get any work done. And so we tweaked our game plan, huddled up and said, hey, why doesn't one parent watch both kids so that the other parent can do work and then we'll tag and we'll switch so that one of us is able to do work throughout the day. And that little tweak has helped us get to week uh, five and six where we're at right now. And so the idea here is that when you feel like there are no options, you have to realize that innovation thrives during limitation. So you have to put your entrepreneur hat on and you have to be as creative as possible. Innovation thrives during limitation. And so keep thinking of creative ways that you can uh, sort of meet the needs of your body and practice self-care during this quarantine. There's one last thing I want to take a look at uh, when it comes to this passage, and it's in verse 7. And you may not have noticed this before, but in verse 7 it says, The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched Elijah and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. And here we see the compassion of the angel who is not tending to Elijah's needs just once, but twice. And you may not have seen this before, but there's actually a difference between angels or an angel and the angel of the Lord. Because when you take a look at the Bible, oftentimes the angels show up to the scenes and people are so afraid of these angels because of how majestic that they are. Majestic they are. They fall to their knees and bow down in worship. And usually the, uh, an angel uh, will say, hey, don't do that. Don't bow down and worship me. Worship God alone. But there are other times in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord is bowed down to and worshiped, and that angel of the Lord never refuses it. Instead, the angel of the Lord gladly receives the worship. And what we see in this passage and other glimpses in the Old Testament, whenever we see the angel of the Lord, is that the angel of the Lord is none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus. We know that Jesus took on flesh 2,000 years ago when he was born in human embodiment, but Jesus has always eternally existed. And we see glimpses of him in spirit form as the angel of the Lord in passages like this. And here Jesus comes tending to the needs of Elijah. Why? Because the journey, it's too much for him. And this is very consistent with Jesus' own teachings in the New Testament. For example, for example, Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So how does Jesus provide us the rest that we need when we feel overwhelmed? Well, one of the ways that God does that is through his provisions. And here in this passage, Jesus provides Elijah with bread over hot coals and a jar of water. And his provisions for us might look a little bit different. Sometimes it's an unemployment check. Sometimes it's a stimulus check. Sometimes it's a job. There are some people in our community that were unemployed prior to the quarantine, but now have a job during the quarantine. Sometimes God provides us with a random phone call from someone that really uplifts our spirit when we were overwhelmed with discouragement. Sometimes God provides us with a random hot meal just when we didn't feel like cooking for everyone. 
Sometimes God fills our reserve tank with more resiliency and inner fortitude to face another day, just when the thought of waking up to another day seemed very, very daunting on us. And you know what? Sometimes God provides us with a mediocre sermon where the pastor says something that really clicked for us because the pastor said, just because you live a busy life, it doesn't mean that you have to live a hurried life. All of us are busy, but not all of us have to be hurried because life in general and this quarantine in particular are not a sprint, but it's a marathon. And so we have to learn how to pace ourselves. Otherwise, we're going to get overwhelmed. And so there are many tangible and intangible ways that God provides for us rest and comfort whenever we feel overwhelmed. But there is one thing that God does for us that comforts us the most. And what he does is that he provides for us himself. You know, oftentimes we feel overwhelmed because of all the things that we need to do. And this laundry list keeps getting longer and longer and longer and it just doesn't feel like there's enough time to do all of these things. But you know what? When you enter into a relationship with God, he throws that list out the window. And what he says is this, I don't need you to do anything for me. I just want you to be with me. And this is the difference between Christianity and religion and irreligion. Because in religion and irreligion, it's all about your performance. Work, it's all about your work performance. School, it's all about your academic performance. Uh, with religion, it's all about your moral performance. But in Christianity, it's not about your performance at all. He doesn't want you to do anything for him. He just wants you to be with him. And in that regard, Christianity is a lot more like The Voice and American Idol. If you've never seen The, uh, the Voice or American Idol before, it's a singing competition. And at the very end, a winner is crowned. And when the winner is crowned, they give them a bouquet of flowers and they shove a mic into their hands and they ask them to sing one final song. But usually when they sing, it's not very good because they're crying tears of joy, they forget the lyrics, and they really don't care about this performance at all because the performance, it's over. They've already been crowned the winner. And in many ways, when it comes to Christianity, the performance is over. You've already won. Why? Because it's really about the performance and the work of Jesus. He lived the life and performed the life that we should have done. And what Jesus does on the cross is that he deposits that into our account as if we had lived that life, even though we didn't. But he not only lives that perfect life that we should have lived, but he also dies on our behalf by bearing the overwhelming burden, not only of my sin and your sins, but the sins of the whole world. And despite dying a death that he did not deserve, not once did he feel sorry for himself, not once did he ever throw a pity party. Rather, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, and that joy was you. And when you realize that you were his joy, and he gladly lived and died for you. You know what's going to happen? He's going to become your joy. And you ought to gladly live your life for him. And so when you feel overwhelmed, look at your Savior who bore all of, all of the sins of the whole world on his shoulders, caring for you, dying for you so that you can live the life that you are currently living.
And so when your performance is not up to par as a parent, in your job, as a spouse, and it's hardly anything but an A plus, remember that God still loves you and he accepts you and he just wants you to be with him because it's not about your performance at all. Christianity is all about his performance for you. And he not only dies for you and loves you, but I also want you to know that he lives in you. You know, oftentimes we fantasize about being in a different set of circumstances when we feel overwhelmed. But the key to not feeling overwhelmed is not us in different circumstances, but the key to remember is that Christ is in us so that regardless of what circumstances we face, we can endure all things because we are anchored on him. It's not about us in different circumstances. It's about Christ in us. And I want to close with one uh, final quote from John Newton. in a, in a compilation of some letters that he wrote to a friend. And um, as one theologian put it, these, when you read these letters, they're like blazing glory. And I want to read to you an excerpt of what John Newton, the author of the most famous song in history, Amazing Grace, wrote in uh, this letter. And Newton says this, Everything which he sends, that is God, is needful. Nothing can be needful which he withholds. Be content to bear the cross. Others have borne it before you. You have need of patience, and if you ask, the Lord will give it to you. But there can be no settled peace until our will is in a measure subdued. Hide yourself under the shadow of his wings. Rely upon his care and power. Look upon him as a physician who has graciously undertaken to heal your soul of the worst of sicknesses, sin. And when you cannot see your way, be satisfied that he is your leader. When your spirit is overwhelmed within you, he knows your path. He will not leave you to sink. He has appointed seasons of refreshment, and you shall find that he does not forget you. Above all, keep close to the throne of grace. If we seem to get no good by attempting to draw near him, we may be sure we shall get none by keeping away from him. Let's pray together.